Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And I am smiling because I can't wait to dive into Andy Hilliard's story. He's one of my favorite people on the planet. And believe it or not, that's true. He is quirky. He is bright. He is funny. He is very intelligent. And you'll see that soon. Uh, and he's running a real, really cool company. So we'll dive into all of that. And we have a lot of history together. And we'll probably go into that going back into the 90s. Yes, the 90s back with, uh, you know, the big shoulder pads and parachute pants. Right. Um, so anyway, Andy, it's good to have you on here. And here's the scenario. So I understand that your son Tomas has left the MLS he is getting his MBA at Stanford. He's now playing again. Southern California. <laughs> in, that's right. He's playing uh, soccer again. You and your wife are walking through the parking lot, going into the stadium again for yet another soccer match. And you have been by many, many, many of those <laughs> since Tom, Tomas was a little kid. But somebody in Southern California recognizes you, even though you live in Northern California and you did live in Charlotte. That's how we got to meet. Somebody recognizes you and says, hey, that is Andy Hilliard. And they start talking about you, but didn't realize that you can hear every word that they say because you've got bionic ears. What would you like somebody to be saying about you, Andy? Uh, well, Probably. And by the way, thanks, Gary, for inviting me today. Uh, it's, it's great to always see you, talk to you. And when I get out to Charlotte, it's great to spend time together. So, um, you know, if, if someone if I overheard someone talking about me, you know, they may some, say something like uh, he's got a really cool business and he travels the world uh, and interacts with different cultures and, and uh, partners around the world and many different countries. And oh, by the way, he was a Peace Corps volunteer. So uh, from what I know, he really enjoys interacting with different cultures and bringing, uh, you know, bringing companies and people together from different cultures to work harmoniously together. That's uh, from from what I gather, that's what he really digs. I love that, man. That, that's true. Yeah. Very good. So. It's funny because about two things you mentioned in there, I already had in notes of what I wanted to talk to you about. So you teed us up perfectly, Andy. Um, so Andy's the CEO of Accelerance, which like Gary said, we're going to dive into. But instead of me listing off some of the, uh, the early phases of your career, I want you to, to paint the picture for us of your early career. And, and then we'll get into the, the Peace Corps uh, story and then kind of go from corporate America to entrepreneurship. We'll go that way. So can you paint that picture for us? Hey, Andy, before you do sure. that, you've got to start with one of your famous former neighbors in California. You know who I'm talking about, I think. Give me a hint. L Linus and Lucy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, geez, <laughs> that's, way start there. that's way back. I know. That's when I was a child. So, yeah, I grew up in Santa Rosa, California, which... Uh, Jerry was alluding to is also the home of Charles Schultz. And uh, he came to California in the mid 60s from Minnesota, and he built what uh, was then called and, and still called, I guess, in many circles, the most beautiful ice arena in the world. Because as if you know your peanuts, you know, they skate and Snoopy plays hockey and stuff like that. So he built this Swiss chalet of an ice arena. And of course, when it opened, I think I was maybe seven years old. And that's, uh, I even had FOMO back then. I had to be an early adopter and I was like the first day there, I was taking skating lessons. And that's also when like the Oakland Seals, California Golden Seals, you know, came into the National Hockey League and expansion. So there was a lot of excitement and I wanted to be a pro hockey player. So uh, yeah, I played hockey all through my you know, younger years and actually ended up uh, going back East and then playing college hockey at the university of Denver. But to get there, uh, I became friends with one of Charles Schultz's sons who actually as a sideline was also at some point engaged to my sister. And so essentially I had a key to the ice arena and we would play all through the night, you know, into the early morning hours 
and, you know, eat free candy bars behind the, you know, it, it was basically our own little, you know, Disneyland of ice. Um, so yeah, that was that story. Now, so now you understand why I said you cannot skip over that. <laughs> That's just too interesting. Yeah. That's part of who you are. Like there are characteristics that the listeners will find out that are very true to you now as they were back in the, those days. Like you were an early adopter yeah. early on. Right. So keep going. Yeah. yeah. So as I mentioned, I went to university of Denver to play hockey and, um, you know, I think like most people graduating from school, uh, they, they don't know who they are or what they should do. Maybe they take the advice of their parents, which, of course, are always, you know, risk mitigating their child's life. You know, you should go uh, go work at a bank and in 50 years you get a gold watch and, you know, and, and not knowing what to do. That's kind of the path I pursued because I didn't know any better and I didn't want to be. You know, I was out there alone in the world, an adult having to pay for stuff. And and I didn't want to take any risks. I just was not a risk taker and and had a pretty comfortable, um, you know, cocoon like existence from home to college and then out into the real world. So, yeah, I, I pursued banking and slowly and surely it just sucked the <laughs> sucked the life and the anime out of my body uh, over about a four year period. Uh, and, you know, it gave me also those years gave me the, the time to start to evaluate uh, who I am and what I really want to do, what made me happy, what gave me energy, what sucked that energy away. And uh, it was on a cross country skiing trip that my roommate said, you know, dude, you should go join the Peace Corps. And I'm like, Peace Corps? What the hell is that? Is that thing still around, you know? Uh, you know, I think there's a reference to Animal House and the Peace Corps, something like that. And and I didn't think it was around. He goes, yeah, I mean, it's it's great. Uh, I went and uh, lived on a kibbutz for two years after college. That's why you didn't see me. And then we came back together. And it's the greatest experience ever. Literally, the next day I was applying for the Peace Corps. So um, I don't know. You want me no, to stop? Or I'll, no, I'll talk perfect. for two so hours. Before we go into the Peace Corps a little bit. What were some of those things as you were evaluating it being in banking? What were some of the, those things that were sucking energy from you? What was it about that environment? Uh, yeah, if I could crystallize it, I felt like my life existed for the 48 hours or so between Friday night and Monday morning. Uh, that essentially I was a cog in a large machine uh, and I didn't feel like I either had uh, you know, ownership or direction or a pathway to be a, you know, more of a change agent. I, I guess, you know, all of us in our roles and in companies, you know, have our own little uh, area of which we are accountable for. But I, I really felt like, um, you know, I wanted my life and, and the seven days of the week, not just the two days of the week, dedicated to something more that I could make, you know, more monumental impact on. Mm -hmm. And so I was really running this. I cannot do this for the next, you know, 50 years of my life. Right. I need some perspective. I need a radical change to my life. What do I like to do? Well, I like to travel. I love traveling right out of college when everyone went to Europe to do a backpacking thing. You know, my buddy and I went to Asia for three months and we just hung out and got little odd jobs. And, and it was that it was eye-opening, fascinating. Uh, and, and that's really what lit, lit the spark. And you can imagine going to Asia with zero direction, no internet, of course, you know, you just figuring things out on the ground and then coming back and, and embarking on a four-year, I don't want to badmouth banking, but you can imagine a young person with all the energy and vision and, and opportunity in front of them. And then, you know, going back and showing up at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning and, you know, balancing people's checkbooks or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody finds fulfillment or happiness out of different things, right? And that clearly didn't sure. fit you. But fortunately, you had the, the self-awareness and the ability to step back and evaluate yourself so you could make a pivot or a change. So, Absolutely. So you're on this cross-country skiing trip. Your buddy mentions it. You're signing up the next day, essentially. Um, 
what were you, what were you hoping to get out of the Peace Corps experience beforehand, right? Did you have anything in your mind of what you were hoping to get out of it? Uh, it's such a great lead in. Um, yeah. So of course, you know, since when you don't have any experience, you get a lot of input from other people and being a mid twenties sort of guy, my, my input was coming from other mid twenties, single people, you know, primarily guys. And they're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. So I applied for the Peace Corps and they said, okay, you're going to go to Tuvalu, which is a small Island chain, 1800 miles east of Australia, which right now I think is underwater, but you know, just global warming and all that. But at the time I was going to be a, a uh, business development uh, consultant for the Peace Corps in Tuvalu. Uh, they said that, you know, I would have my own canoe. And of course, my buddies are like, you got to go there, man. There's going to be like, you're going to be king with like a, like a coconut crown. And you're going to have all these, you know, girls with coconut bras running around and stuff like that. It's going to be like, I'm amazing. And at first, you know, it sounds really great when you're in your mid-20s. But luckily, something in my brain said, I need to walk away with, you know, with this adventure and this job with something that is leverageable to my life, both personally and professionally. And, you know, being an island king, you know, and stuff like that, I don't think is exactly what I want to get out of it. So I actually asked them to uh, choose a country in Latin America. And interestingly enough, at first they were going to send me to Nicaragua which by the way, was in the midst of Contra, uh, you know, insurgencies back in the late eighties, early nineties. And, and actually two people in the group that I would have been in were shot and killed during their training. So who knows? Yeah. Uh, it could have been me, but in any case, I, I did look it up. I did have access to almanacs and stuff like that. And like, yeah, that doesn't look like something I want to be involved in. They say, what about Costa Rica? I'm like, Costa Rica, Costa Rica, Costa Rica, Switzerland of Latin America, you know, loving country, no army. Everyone loves Costa Rica, you know, ecotourism. Yeah, that sounds like a great place for me. And that's why I ended up there. And, and what I got out of it was, you know, obviously bilingualism in Spanish, uh, also a country that was, you know, uh, truly evolving and becoming, you know, more integrated in, in sort of first world um, and, uh, you just, it, you know, the ability to live in a small town community, become part of that community. I taught baseball, taught English, uh, business development with fisheries and ceramic associations. Um, and, you know, I became part of the community, which, which is, a, that's a big thing with the Peace Corps. It's, you're not a consultant flying in with money to throw out problems, which actually exacerbates problems because once that money goes away, people are left more dependent than they were when they began. Right. Right. Peace Corps volunteers, you know, you're in there for 30 months at least, and you're living right beside people. You're earning the same salary as a local person's and you are just weaving yourself in. You're appreciating the culture you're in. You're understanding their culture. You're, you're sharing your culture with them. And, and these, you know, perceptions become truths because they actually get to live with you. And that's what's amazing about the Peace Corps is two of the three goals is sharing your culture with them and, and telling truths and, and giving better perspective, bringing their culture back to the U.S. and sharing that with other people so they get the right perspective and not these generalizations of people. And the third goal is actually doing your work. So your work is actually the third goal. The first two goals is basically trusting and communicating with uh, people of different cultures and, and sharing that and lowering the, the bridges or, or creating the bridges and lowering the barriers to, to mistrust so that people can work harmoniously around the world. And frankly, that's basically what my company does today. That, that was the DNA shifter in right. my brain. Yeah. Yeah. Years <laughs> later, right. And you can connect it all the way back to that. One it took me a long time to connect all those dots thinking, Oh my God, I'm reliving Peace Corps. That made such an amazing impact wow. on me. Yeah. One of the, the really early themes already in this conversation is uh, exposure to others' thoughts and ideas, right? The immersion into Asia for a few months, going into the Peace Corps and, and getting the uh, sharing the culture back and forth in Costa Rica. A um, couple questions that I want to ask on that. The first one is what what were some of those things you learned from the exposure to these other cultures 
that especially early in your career that you then were able to take back post Peace Corps or post Asia trip and apply into your life? Because that shifts perspective, right? Of how you look at the day-to-day versus somebody that lives in a United States city for their entire life. Yeah, I probably think the biggest thing was how do people uh, achieve happiness in in their own culture, given different circumstances, uh, you know, from socioeconomic standing and and you know how they uh, how they interact with one another how families are uh, interact with one another uh, how they you know how they just live their lives and and where they extract happiness from uh, which is you know remarkably different than the way we do it in in America and in, in America so diverse people do it in different ways you know they do it spiritually they do it commercially they do it whatever whatever the thing drives but you know in in other countries especially countries most all countries that are less developed than the, the United States, it, it does get back to some real basic human interactions. You know, it's people are simple, you know, the, the food is simple, the relationships are simple, but they're very tight. Uh, and, and they're, they're very, you know, socially codependent on one another. People are, you know, in Latin America, for example, every single town in all of Latin America, there is a park in the middle of town. And, and on one side of the park is a church. And, and uh, there are benches in the park and there's typically all these venues to go there. And every single night people will, you know, walk around. There'll be some people selling, you know, uh, ice cream from carts. There'll be some music there. There'll be young lovers, you know, there'll be old people. Uh, There's always a, a, a point in the middle of the park, you know, where they have uh, events and, and things happening and it, and it draws, you know, the community to the park. In big cities and small cities, you'll see that. In big cities, you have barrios, and small, you know, small towns, you'll have the same thing. So it's 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 really about understanding and appreciating how people define and and extract or or gain happiness. I think it's really cool when I was listening to that experience again. I was like, yeah, I mean, you have recreated that with accelerants and we will go deeper into what accelerants is which is really cool but it you you were always an early adopter from all the stories and and my experience with you in the 90s early adopter you know always like kind of almost bleeding edge in a lot of technology adoption um but this notion of traveling and bringing people together to solve problems and i mean was really cool. There's one other thing though that that happened in Costa Rica that you haven't talked about. So I'm not trying to be obtuse, but you you did become king, just so you know. <laughs> you like finding my wife? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't planned. Uh, <laughs> but you know, when you're in your mid to late 20s, you know. You, you got those hormones going on and stuff like that. And, you know, things happen, you know, you run into enough people, uh, you find your destiny. Uh, so yeah, my, my wife worked in the Peace Corps office and, uh, every month I would have to come in, which is about a five hour bus ride from my site and do, uh, both a medical and a, um, and a job report to, to my program director. And, uh, my wife was a program director in the Peace Corps in the office and, I just happened to hear through the grapevine that she had a breakup of a four-year relationship. So, you know, it was American or probably universal. Yeah, I'm on the rebound. Someone's on the rebound. Someone's vulnerable. And uh, <laughs> I hate to I hate to position it like that, but it has lasted 30 years. So, you know, it's not like. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a big thing, man. So congratulations on that. But I think that's just another part of your story that's so cool. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I'm not overtly recommending people and join the Peace Corps to find a spouse. But, you know, things happen when you're in your mid to late 20s. Yeah, the Peace Corps kind of frowns upon that expressed purpose of going to the Peace Corps for that. They, they actually won't take volunteers when they dig in enough to find out if they have an existing relationship, those, that is a automatic killer of an application because, you know, people quit. They put a lot of time and effort and money, government money into 
you know, training Peace Corps volunteers. They want you to stay for 30 months. If you don't, you make an impact on your community. Why did this person bail? Well, it's because they had, you know, a relationship and they were, you know, lonely and all that. So that's not a good thing. Hmm. It's hard to get into Peace Corps, actually. Really? Well, fortunately, you you were able to get in. So so you have that experience and then you you come back. So so take us mm-hmm. into that next step. You come back, you've had this experience after the four years of trying to figure out what fulfilled you and what didn't. What are your next steps? Well, to Gary's point about what did you want to get out of the Peace Corps? I kind of thought that through beforehand. I kind of laid, you know, when, when I was sitting on that bench snow skiing and someone planted the whole Peace Corps thing, I thought, okay, what, what do I need to do to change my life? Well, one, go to the Peace Corps. That's like French Foreign Legion. Um, two, uh, go to grad school, uh, get an MBA uh, and, and elevate my knowledge, elevate my learning, elevate my exposure to what is possible. And hey, huh, I can leverage the Peace Corps because, you know, getting in someplace is like anything else. It's competitive uh, and you need to differentiate yourself. That's kind of the, the marketing you know, aspect of things. And, and uh, I knew the Peace Corps was a clear differentiator. Bilingualism is a clear differentiator. Having stories to tell like that is clear differentiator. You know, uh, you know, the Harvards or Kellogg's or what Stanford's of the world can only accept so many Stanley Morgan, you know, management trainees. They, they only have room for about three or four of them, you know, before you run out. But there's too many of them. So, and how do you differentiate yourself? You know, in our class had like a Barnum and Bailey clown. And we had, you know, I was the Peace Corps volunteer, I guess. But, you know, I kind of knew that was a differentiating factor. So I applied when I first got to the Peace Corps. I, I did the tests uh, before I went to the Peace Corps. And then I applied during the Peace Corps. You have a lot of free time, by the way. Uh, reading a lot of books and stuff. And uh, then I got in. And as soon as I left the Peace Corps, I, I went straight to Chicago. Uh, by the way, my wife and I were kind of, quote unquote, engaged at the time, meaning that she said, you know, you go back to the US. And after three months in grad school, if you still have the desire to marry me, tell me and then we'll arrange it. So she she basically kind of threw down a challenge and nobody challenges me. It's like, it's like Marty McFly in back to the future chicken. Nobody calls me chicken. <laughs> so that's the other story. Sad. She kind of challenged me. And of course I'm coming back. Nobody says I'm not going to come back. I follow through with things. Um, so yeah, I went straight to Kellogg and, and, um, and then the funny thing was I fell into the trap. The same trap I fell into in undergrad. I mean, you know, we all make mistakes multiple times. You don't just make one mistake and learn the golden truth, right? And I fell into the trap in that you go to a grad school like Kellogg and you have these recruiters coming to you and you feel like you're, uh, you know, a hotshot or something like that. And you fall into the same, hey, come to work as a cog in our great company at a great salary. And, uh, you know, you just drink the Kool-Aid. All of your case studies are about Fortune 500 companies. They're coming to you and you try to get as much, I guess, money as you can without really thinking about what makes you happy. Uh, You you play the game. It's a game. Everything's pretty much a game until you decide not to play the game. Hmm. And that's kind of what happened. You know, I got into brand uh, consumer packaged goods, brand management with Nestle. And that's where then I met Gary. I met Gary when I started to have a family and I moved to Charlotte and uh, I got a job at Bank of America. And Gary, I don't think, no, you didn't hire me directly, but I did fall underneath you. And that was quite an amazing experience. Gary? Elaborate. No, yeah, I was going to say you can, you know, fill in a couple spots from there. So what do you call my favorite thing? Yeah. So one of my favorite things, like I've had to have my mic turned off this entire time because I'm laughing. Like you just make me laugh. I, I just dig you. You're a great storyteller and you, you have just great experiences, but um, yeah. So Andy has had this and still does a resume that makes mine look like dog poop. You know, it's just like seriously. Like, and that's not an exaggeration. It's just the truth. And um 
I liked Andy. So he, he was one of the leaders in my, in the small business team that, that I was over. And, um, but one of my favorite things is, so since that time I was away from Charlotte, came back to Charlotte. I was gone for 13 long winters in Cleveland, Ohio, came back. And then Andy and I reconnected again. And um, whenever we get in a social situation, he'd go, Hey, uh, meet Gary. He was my boss at Bank of America until he had to fire, until he fired me. And that's always, uh, you know, an interesting conversation starter. And it's that whole experience was so, it was traumatic for me. It was, it's more traumatic when you get fired, period. There's, and I've been on that side of the stick too. But both of us had little kids at the time. And Andy was a very like, go, go, get them, get them. You know, he, he was running faster than everybody else in the company, quite frankly, and was like three steps ahead, typically of pretty much everybody, it seemed like. Um, and in, in doing that, sometimes it can be perceived as you're breaking glass and you're not playing by the, but it's just like a Labrador retriever that's just happy and the tail's wagging and, you know, things are happening. And that, that's kind of what happened. I'm like, oh, to my boss, is there any place else? She, and, and she said, no, you know, it's just, you know, not the right fit. He's a good guy, but he, there's something else that he needs to be doing. I don't know what it is, but like he will fit better somewhere else. And that just killed me. So I said, well, <clears throat> let's give him the what's the best severance package we can give him so we we did that we end up going to re-ros and having this conversation that i didn't want to deliver and he wasn't i don't know that you were expecting it and didn't want to deliver have it delivered to you but the cool thing was is and this is the learning for me you were miserable but you were dealing with it because you had responsibilities. Your wife was home with your children as mine was. And you take that responsibility very seriously. You'll, you know, cut your own arm off to take care of your family. And so in doing that, what was interesting is very shortly, you went into a technology world, which is you're running a cool technology company now, but you were, I remember seeing you from my office walking on uh, Tryon Street, walking, talking with your hands, and you were talking using a, some sort of a Bluetooth uh, headset or whatever. And I'm like, what in the world's he doing? You know, and you were one of the first early adopters using some Late sort of Bluetooth te technology. It was the size of a shoe. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, wow, this is, I mean, but you went out and doubled your salary or pretty close to it, if I'm not mistaken. And it like, and so I say, well, when you say, yeah, Gary was my boss until he fired me. And I go, I, I liberated you from, from corporate America so that you could excel in doing what you love to do and what you're made to do, I think. And yeah, uh, so you know, it's just I mean, I, one of I those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a lesson for all of us in that, you know. Well, we yeah, you, you have to take an accounting and actually even your employer, like you did, took an accounting of of what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, and your own organization, right? Your own function saying, we need someone with these strengths uh, and Andy has other strengths and, and it's not what we need right now. Because I'm a wonderer guy, I'm an invention guy. I'm also uh, you know, a competitor um, and I like to um, sort of be in charge. And you know, I like to pursue things like a dog on a bone, you know? And all of those things are good in, in their own, in, in the right space. And either you create your own space where that, where you could flourish with those strengths. But if you put in another space where, no, we really need a galvanizer or, a, or someone who is, you know, tenacious and, and social being who has the time and energy and maybe not the family commitments and stuff like that, that, you know, they can work within our culture and our environment. And so it was just, it's just a you know, slight mismatch. And, and I did, I think ultimately Peace Corps made such a, a, a mark on my personality and, and what I feel that I'm good at, the strengths and, and areas of happiness that, that I just needed to find or create an environment where I could thrive. And, you know, I, 
that's why I basically ditched the whole Kellogg marketing MBA and said like, I'm going to go into sales and I'm going to go into sales, which has an international uh, aspect to it. Cause those are two areas that I like. I like pursuing things. I like competing. That's, that's the requirement of a sales mentality. And also uh, to the technology and, and sort of wonderment and, um, and sort of FOMO aspect of my personality is sharing insights or wisdom of something of value that people don't know they uh, have available or, or that they could use to improve their life, improve their business, improve their business outcomes, and bringing sort of this international, this mystery, mysterious international value to clients was really you know, compelling and, and it's something I could speak to from the heart. And something I could, you know, weave in anecdotes about, you know, my life and, and what I'm doing. So I really needed to just pursue a different function, sales versus marketing, and pursue a different business model, which is sort of international versus, you know, not. So you said something there in that that was like really powerful and important. And, and you used the word thrive. And you also mentioned, because you are a very good marketer. Um, you know, what you didn't say is your Perrier and Nestle. I mean, you had, you, you, you've got an amazing pedigree and you're very good at it, but it wasn't bringing you life. Yeah. Stuff that you mentioned with technology and bringing people together and all of that and trailblazing, you are a trailblazer. You're a visionary. Um, those are in your thrive column. And even though you're really good, you're a very good marketer. Some of that stuff was in your wither column. You know, you know Gary, uh, you just, yeah, you just uh, brought to light something that I didn't really realize is that, you know, marketing, you, you're sort of working internally, creating messaging, and uh, but you're not interacting directly per se. You're, you're creating content, you're creating programs, campaigns, you know, but, uh, but you're doing it within a group internal to your organization and I needed to be out there evangelizing. Uh, you know, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I love the concept of the power of an evangelist, someone who believes in something so, so deeply that they need to tell people and share that with other people. And ho hopefully that they, that the, the people that they speak to can also, you know, gain and buy that. And so I really needed to market, but, you know, do so interpersonally, which I guess is kind of what sales is, <laughs> if you're good at it. Well, and that's why I like this thing. And we've talked about it. And I, I do a lot with this Thrive Wither T-chart because it's not strengths and weaknesses. Many times strengths, which you have a very natural and developed strength of marketing, can be in that Wither column. And a lot of times people you know, keep putting stuff in your wither column bucket because you're good at it. But until you realize it and get honest about it, wait a minute, what really makes me come alive? Because coming alive is different than your strengths. A lot of times your strengths are in that, but what makes you come alive, which is interesting because anybody that knows Andy Hilliard knows that he has a spark in his step. He has a grin on his face, and yet you're, yeah, you're a competitor, but you are not a cutthroat competitor. At least that's not been my experience ever. It's always been, let's bring people together. Let's find a win-win. And I like to win and I like to run hard. I mean, you can't play hockey and not, you know, I mean, you play hard and yeah, you body check people into this, into the walls at times, but um, it's, yeah, I, it's I am bad. probably one of the least cutthroat you know, people or competitors you can ever imagine. I mean, my, my life is all around uh, having a clear conscious. Can I sleep well at night? Uh, you know, like Ben Franklin, neither a, a, a lender nor a borrower be. I don't like to borrow. Uh, I, I like to provide value. And then if value comes back to me, fine. I always want to be ahead of, of that. Maybe it's some sort of, um, I, I don't feel comfortable feeling in, in liability or debt in any way, shape or form. Um, because then it puts onus on me of maybe I don't want to focus on that, but I, I have that, 
obligation. I have a, but I have other things, and but I have this obligation, you know, over over your head and stuff. Whether it's just personal debt, commercial debt, you know, consumer debt, whatever, whatever that is, or emotional debt, or or you know, things like that. It's it's something that weighs on you, and the, the lightness of being. I need to I need to feel that, which means that I I really just try to provide as much value uh, and uh, let the chips fall where they where they might. I know that's probably not shared by most, you know, salespeople in the world. You know, it's like, get it no matter how, how you can get right. it. You just got to win. It's like, uh, uh, I don't want to because I don't like the burden that that comes with it. Yeah. So just another reason why I like you so much, Andy, then that, that's the truth. Well, and it's a different perspective too, right? Versus what you typically hear within sales or business development. So you mentioned sales, you did business development in Costa Rica. You've got a uh, or in the Peace Corps, you've got a strong background in in that world, right? So want to get a little bit more tactical. What are some of the the bigger mistakes that you see businesses do around business development? Uh, bigger mistakes that businesses do around business development. Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, one is um, leveraging technology too much. Uh, I, I know I'm a big proponent of hyper-personalization. Uh, it, it's always worked for me. I guess it comes back to wanting to uh, interact with people on a real-time basis. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the way technology is, it, it just, it, it, it's so fraught with um, so many ways to avoid personalization and interaction. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have to be careful because there, there's some things where, look, it, it's all about the numbers. You know, if you can get a, a billion messages out there, uh, you know, who cares how personal or, or impersonal it is. If you're selling professional services, you know, it means a lot because those services are typically bought, you know, via uh, trust, you know, trusted advisor. Uh, and, and in my world, um, it really requires people that are, thoughtful, knowledgeable, um, and are come across or are validated by the recipient as trustworthy stewards of knowledge that will provide value to an end client. Uh, that's my world. That's the world I live in. So it's, it's quality over quantity in, in my world. There is a certain, I mean, yes, we run marketing campaigns. Yes, those campaigns are not all, you know, one-on-one -on -one touches. But they are the purpose of those campaigns are to get a one-on-one -on -one touch. So, uh, so how do businesses balance the two, right? Because you want you want the efficiency that something like technology can provide, but you want the hyper personalization. Um, so how how can a company, an owner that's uh, listened to this podcast today, how can they balance between the two of make a consistent process in business development? To, to do both, right? To be efficient, but also get that personalization you're talking about. Well, it's um, not too different than most companies. For example, I mean, you have to focus on, on mass outreach and top of mind awareness and lead generation practices as far as uh, conversions. So, you know, you're making sure that your message is out there. You're making sure that you're ranking. You're making sure that your target audience is, is very specifically defined. You're getting messages out to your target audience. Uh, you also, you know, for example, in Celerance, we have a, a BDM organization, business development management organization, who makes uh, outbound calls and, 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 our, and emails people. And those people are much more knowledgeable than your typical BDR rep. These people can have conversations with you. You know, we've trained them extensively on our value proposition, on our services, and, and on sort of big macro uh, strategic aspects of our business. They're not just, you know, dialers and, and someone who's just trying to grab someone. Uh, they do that, of course, you know, each one I think uh, makes 150 calls a day and sends out the same number of emails. So that that's the volumetrics. That's, that's the outreach, the broader outreach. Um, and then, you know, we have account executives, even myself included, uh, that are, are very, very deeply knowledgeable, you know, decades of experience who, will invest time in, in talking about trends 
and um, you know, sharing anecdotes around other clients and how they approached it strategically and tactically, and and uh, trying to you know put people's mind at ease as opposed to this is doable. There are benefits that can be achieved. Uh, it's not it's not all fear and doubt and uncertainty uh, in going into something that you might not know. We can help guide you, uh, and, and we've been there a thousand times. So it's, it's you know, a combination of, of just trying to inject as much personalization and knowledge and, and trustworthiness into the flow of communication. But it starts with just awareness, of course. Right. Yep. No, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Um, so I want to speed up uh, your timeline a little bit and, and get into accelerating some, right? There are so many unique pieces about the business. I want to be able to talk about it a little bit. So sure. first, uh, fill the, the listeners in on just the basics of what accelerance is while Gary goes to grab a book. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So accelerance helps companies effectively build distributed software development teams that act as an extension of their own company and culture. So if you really unpack that and you think about it, it's like, it's kind of like Peace Corps, right? It's like you're bringing entities together to become one, to be codependent, to be co-accountable for developing software, develop, for developing software together. Uh, why would people do that? Why would people not just go uh, to you know, hire in the US? Well, because companies, aren't in the business of developing software. Why would you do so many things? It's like marketing, for example. A, a company typically is not in the business of marketing. They're in the business of you know, guns or butter, as we used to say in, in grad school or something like that. They're in a different business. They may have a CMO. They may have some program managers in marketing, but honestly, they're not in the business of SEO and campaign management and creation. You may want to hire an agency and that agency is, is part of your company. Same thing with software development. You know, it's most companies aren't in the business of software development. Um, and frankly, there's lots of businesses that's, that's all they do is software development. You should partner with them. Uh, that makes you lighter. That makes you smarter. That makes you better. You don't have to deal with the recruiting and training and retention of people. That's what they do. They do it all day, 24 seven. So, and, and honestly, the, 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 uh, the, Supply of software development talent in the U.S. cannot meet the demand. Uh, if it could, great, you know, but it doesn't and it won't. There's just more demand right now and probably will be for the next 10 years uh, in the United States and companies wanting to digitalize their processes and become more efficient and build unique proprietary differentiating software that makes their business better at whatever they do and there's just too much demand and, and those businesses are not expert at it. so that's that's what we do is we bring these entities together but not just together in a transactional litigious sort of relationship but together truly like in peace corps that you're living in the community that you're working together that there's no border differentiation. There's no cultural, I mean, yes, there's cultural differentiation, appreciation actually, but you are one, you are working as one. So one of the unique pieces about that and that experience when somebody comes to you is the vetting process that Accelerance does, right? So like if I'm going out trying to outsource my software development or systems integration, that means I'm doing all the homework, trying to find the right company to work with. So yeah that's, I mean, that's going to be a full-time job in itself. There are 20,000 software development companies out there. You need one. Yeah. You, so know, talk you about think you're the smartest guy on the planet and you make somehow do some spreadsheet that gets you down from 20,000 to maybe a hundred. You still need one. Right. And you don't want to choose number 99. You want to choose number one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. So first, let's talk about the what the vetting process looks like. And then I want to talk about the the actual experience of like, when I come to you, how you're connecting the partners, things like that. So let's start with the vetting process first. Yeah, so we have a research group that all they do is vet uh, potential and actual partners. That's 8,000 software dev shops that we are scorecarding via publicly available information. And we're putting them into 
buckets or tranches of, of what we deem as, as um, you know, from first glance, there, there's a book blink, you know, right? First glance or, or thin slicing. Like, okay, these are clearly illegitimate, you know, companies. Uh, and we put them in six, six buckets and, and we try to focus on the top two. And obviously that is, you know, size, leadership, web presence, services, you know, all the things that smell and feel right. Like, okay, they, they look legitimate. They're working with us clients. They have maybe us presence that maybe they have us educated or, or, or leadership, you know, uh, because our, our target audience wants those attributes, right? So you clearly get down to the, these buckets and we try to focus on the top, say 500 of those companies. And from there, our, our goal is to have somewhere between 75 and 100 software development partners that are the cream of the crop, not only from publicly available information, but once we get down to a couple of hundreds, we're putting teams on planes and we're traveling to those countries. And like Peace Corps, we're breaking bread, we're interviewing their leadership, leadership across business, processes, technologies, human resources, innovation, any sort of practices of specialty. And we get down to that trust factor. It's like these people, you know, we are verifying that their clients love them. They do what they say they do. They have thought leadership in these different practices. Uh, and this is something that the American audience, our target audience, should really be leveraging, should know about. The, the funny thing in my, in my industry is that these software development partners, they're all full of engineers who are not that great at marketing or sales or communicate. They just want, give me a project and I will solve your problem. Don't make me do selling and marketing. It's like, right. That's, I hate that. Yep. You know, and that's kind of, you know, we don't want to say, you know, yes, we're a sales and marketing organization, but we're a vetter. We're a certifier. Right. We're filling that gap for them. We want to find those diamonds in the rough, those truly amazing engineering companies. And we want to bring them to light for the American companies that need a partner like that. Yeah. So. yeah and that's immensely valuable, right? And yeah. Plus, you probably don't want a marketer being the person that's doing your system development anyway, or your software development anyway. So you're finding exactly. those diamonds in the rough instead of a company having to go out and find it for themselves. So you've done that vetting process and continue, right? That's a continuous process, obviously. Yeah. And then a company comes to you and they need, they need a, a software project or something like that. They're looking for it. What's that experience look like on that flip side when they're coming to you? So, yeah, we do a process that takes typically about 10 days. And that is a couple of sessions, maybe an hour and a half or so, where we're asking all types of quantifiable and qualifiable information about uh, their requirements, their needs, their vision, uh, obviously their budget, their, you know, how they imagine the relationship to be, uh, you know, soft things like uh, uh, country association and culture association and experiences. What have you done? What have you not done? What, do you, what did you feel was good versus bad? What would you like to do in which countries, which regions, with which cultures, time zone alignment, uh, obviously tangible things like what is your technology stack and, and what are you trying to build? Uh, how, what's big, how big is your team to start? How big could it grow over time? And all of this information so that we can start to scorecard and we can wait and we can get some sort of like objective look at, okay, here's all of our partners and here's where all of their data sort of uh, fits the partners, which we, we were always gathering information on and, and the client, which is providing information. And so, you know, we go through this, our own scorecarding, we make a short list and then we take this client story to the shortlisted partners, maybe six to 10 partners and say, you know what, based on our knowledge of you and based on our scorecard, you seem like a really good fit. Now let's start sharing anecdotes about this is the story of the client. Tell me lately, tell me real time what you've been doing with clients like this. Because in the end, you want, you want to slot in to something that is like in, in a wheelhouse or trending up. Because you know, even, even our partners, might say to us is like, I know we're the right fit on paper, but actually we're kind of shifting our focus or we really haven't had clients like that lately. And that is where data can, can really mess you up 
You know, you look at data, but data is always historical. It's not live. So that's, that's where you need to share this like information storytelling. And you say like, oh yeah, we've, if the partner comes back to you and say, oh, we've had, you know, this client, that client, that client, just like them, team size, just like that technology, just like that. We we're, we're loving that. We're, this is what we're heading in the direction we're heading in. So that's where the art and the science sort of come together. And if you can get that energy and that excitement and the validation of matching, then you got a real potential for great relationship. And that's where we start introducing partners to the client. And we do like uh, Zoom video uh, meetings together. And there's a chemical reaction, you know, visceral sort of thing. Again, the blink uh, principle. Uh, and eventually, hopefully, the, the two entities started sharing, um, you know, more in-depth information, more vetting, in-depth vetting. Uh, next month, I'm going to Medellin, Colombia with a client to kick off a new relationship uh, with their new partner. And they went through this whole process and it took them about a month and a half to do with this whole thing that I've been talking about. So that's ultimately what we want to get to. And, and when we get to uh, Medellin, they'll break bread, they'll have dinners together, they'll talk about the game plan, they'll talk about the first three months, what success means, they'll talk about how to measure success, they'll talk about how to commit to one another. Uh, and, you know, we create this, what we call a virtuous circle of accountability, accelerance, client, partner. Um, now, I, I should say one thing, Accelerance is not the owner of the uh, account or the contractual relationship. Uh, we, we wanna be facilitators, we wanna be advisors, and we wanna be in the virtual circle of accountability, but clients want that direct relationship. That's, that's what they come to us for. They just want us to be a, a mediator, a marriage counselor, and someone who can help with continual improvement. No, that's, I think everybody listening is immediately thinking, I want that for every aspect of my outsourcing, right? Because you're, you're doing the legwork, you're making, you're doing that matchmaking. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. So I know we're getting towards the end and I know Gary's got a couple questions. He held up a book earlier. So I want to throw one more out before I pass it over to Gary. As you're running a, a global brand, right? Yeah. Being a, a CEO and you're interacting with all these companies around the world, as you were ramping up accelerants, what have been some of those hurdles that you've had to face as you were going through the growing phase of accelerants? Um, well, you know, relationships are always dynamic uh, and that's just the way of the world. Um, and, and many of the relationships that we've had, uh, you know, pe people think that, well, if I find the right relationship, it should last forever. That's not necessarily the case uh, because clients are evolving and partners are evolving all the time. And uh, what we're, we're trying to do is, is make a determination that will have the uh, greatest, most cohesive impact on the client and the partner for the longest period of time, understanding that even during that time, there'll be uh, changes in evolution in a relationship. Now, a lot of outsourcing uh, blows up in, in literally three to six months because it was the wrong partner and it was the wrong match. And uh, then people are walking around saying outsourcing sucks. It doesn't work. I can't trust those people. We well, need to get to trust and you need to do the, you know, that's what Accelerance does. We do the validation, we do the trust and, and uh, we put uh, two parties together that will literally have years and years of a productive relationship. Uh, it doesn't mean it'll last forever though. And uh, so everyone's evolving. And so it's, it's incumbent on, on, all parties to be accountable and to work on the relationship and to treat each other as an equal, not as a subordinate, not as a master slave, not as any of this, uh, not even transactional throw it over the wall, litigious sort of uh, aspect. And, and that's, you know, one of the learnings that, that we've had is, is basically um, working more with clients and partners to understand this evolutionary process and to, um, to everyone to do their best in support of the relationship. And at the same time, to uh, be honest with one another uh, in, in changes and, you know, make those appropriate changes. Nobody likes change, but it's just part of life. So the reason I went back to my bookshelf, we're going to have to start uh, 
even though we're recording these things now on video, thanks to COVID 2.4 year, years ago or whatever it has been, um, it's audio only right now, but there's, there's too much good stuff. So I think we're going to have to do that and create our own YouTube channel, just so you know, Ben. Uh, but I went back to my bookshelf, Outsource or Else is written by Andy Hilliard, worth reading, by the way. Um, but here's what's interesting about outsourcing. Uh, I, I know a fair amount of folks that have outsourced to varying degrees of success. And a lot of the ones that have failed in their success uh, or have not had success with outsourcing was typically they chased bottom line savings. Oh, well, gosh, you can go to India and it's like pennies on the dollar, right? Well, they didn't work with a vetted company and India is awash with a lot of good software companies and awash with some that are not so good. Well, then you got to take into account, hey, nine and a half hour time difference. You cool with that on the East Coast? It's, it's, a, it's a challenge. It, there are people that make it work really great. And then there are those that really struggle with it. But what I love about like, and this goes back into your marketing mind of looking for differentiation. From my perspective, differentiating factor with accelerants is that whole vetted thing. You're not just schlepping lowest price. Oh, well, trust me, you're going to like these guys because they're, you know, three cents on the dollar versus 20 cents on the dollar, whatever. Well, sometimes you pay, you get what you pay for, you know, sometimes you do. But the fact that you are doing that vetting in a world that's moving fast, 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 you've got to be able to move quickly, but with assurance. And, you know, I guess Absolutely there's true. some, right? Assurance is kind of built into accelerants. It's not just moving quickly. You also said something earlier in the, the conversation that I thought was really interesting from a technology, like an early technology adapter. You said people rely too heavily on, on technology at times, you know, bypassing the human relationship, which, and you, you even said, hey, data is historical, not real time. So I think that's really powerful for anybody listening to this thing. Um, so I can tell you this, and it's not a sales thing. I'm just saying that they have built a really cool mousetrap. Um, I like the vetting thing. And, and it's not, this again, is not a paid advertisement <laughs> for Accelerance, but I, I've known Andy for a long time and I trust him. I trust him emphatically and he does what he says he's gonna do. And he's a lot of fun too. Uh, so anyway, that's all I was going to say about that. But that's why, you know, go check out Outsource or Else on Amazon. You can find it. And um, anyway, that's I'll it's, say it's one other really thing. good. I'll say one yeah. other thing, Gary. And, and that is, um, you know, the other differentiator of us is relationships require hard work. And if you're going to outsource, you need to build a relationship. And and honestly, you know, we work hard enough, all of us do, on our, and it would be it's good to get something out of it yourself, to get some sort of personal fulfillment out of what you're doing professionally. That'll make you better professionally. It'll make you more energized. It'll make you happier professionally. And people don't usually realize that. They usually hire a vendor and they throw stuff over the wall and they don't want to be accountable because eventually they're going to need someone to blame, right? And I'm like, look, our differentiation is selling a different mentality, selling a different model. It's like, no, you're going to have to work on this but here's the fulfillment you are going to get both personally and professionally is that you're going to be getting on planes. You're going to be going to the, to the country. You're going to be learning about their culture. Maybe you'll learn some of the language too. Uh, you will come back feeling in charge, energized, fulfilled, a, a, a new sense of wonder. And all of those things are egotistically fulfilling in addition to making the relationship better and making the business results better. So if you really want to think about it as a completely selfish thing to do, it's also a good business thing to do in the end, as opposed to just thinking about, no, no, this is a job, this is business, and I'm only I'm throwing stuff over the wall. And if I don't like what they, uh, what they do or something's happening else in my business life, I'm going to blame them. And it's like, it's just, you're going to be in that endless loop for the rest of your career, unless you stop and break that loop and approach it from a 
uh, a, uh, oh gosh, service, um, a service mentality, you, you know, a master service. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, that, Gary, um, where you serve your provider of services, you make them yeah. better. Uh, that's, that's when, when you, you know, get the most out of it, both personally and professionally. So, so I, I have one more question, Andy. So you have this global network and what is it? Last I heard was like 140 some vetted providers. It's probably different. What's the number now? So it's uh, 75 certified uh, providers and another 75 uh, redundant uh, vetted service providers. So okay, we cool. work with a yeah, group there and they're in about 31 different countries across Latin America, Eastern Europe and Asia. Uh, I'll throw out one trend for people. Uh, if, if people don't already know this, Latin America is, is hot. It's been hot, but most people are not early adopters. So they feel like they're an early adopter right now, although they're 10 years behind. Uh, the point being is that, you know, Latin America is under humongous demand right now. And, and their the supply is really tight. It's sort of like what America is, but now it's Latin America, right? And so, and, and obviously, if you throw in things like Ukraine and Belarus and Russia, of course, Eastern Europe is tighter with supply than it ever was. Um, so Asian companies are really trying to evolve quickly to eliminating these time zone uh, differences uh, and, and providing and backfilling or taking advantage of the opportunity based on the, the low supply in Eastern Europe and Latin America. So if, if you're looking, uh, it's, it's going back to Asia and for, for all the right reasons. And Asian companies are not the way they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago where, you know, uh, they, they have much better tools, much better processes. Uh, resources in Asia now get paid much more to work overnight. So you are actually communicating real time. There is no time difference. Uh, there is actually, you know, real time communication and such, uh, but it benefits the workers, benefits the engineers. Some engineers get paid up to 80% more to work overnight, which benefits their family, benefits the middle class, makes the world a more stable place when we can all work together. That's, that's sort of the bigger, bigger, bigger picture of what I stand for is this Global stabilization is through people understanding and working together. The more people communicate and work together, the less strife there will be. We, I can't solve the leadership, the country leadership problems, but, you know, the population underneath the 99%, you know, if we work together, travel together and appreciate one another, you know, that's, that's a good place to start. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. You know, the last question that I've got for you for the audience you run a pretty good sized company um, and you, your headquarters was in Charlotte. You still have a good amount of people in Charlotte. You've moved back to California. Um, you've got people now dispersed all over the place because, and with COVID, uh, the rest of the world had to kind of embrace that too. Talk to us about how, you know, some lessons learned or a lesson learned that has worked for you in making that work across time zones with people dispersely located, <clears throat> what, what didn't work and maybe what has worked? Well, I'll throw out a, a, a plug for Pat Lencioni, who you might know as the author of Five Dysfunctions of a Team. We run our whole company under that umbrella, which is trust, conflict, commitment, accountability, and results. And he wrote another book recently, which is called The Six Types of Working Genius, which is understanding on an individual basis what brings you happiness, what, what provides you energy, what you're really good at, and understanding those areas versus areas that you're not necessarily good at, and which you may not know, you may be a good soldier and do it, but it slowly sucks energy out of you, which basically is me in, in Bank of America. <laughs> when I worked with you. Uh, and that is like wonder, invention, discernment, galvanization, enablement, and tenacity. I'm a wonderer and inventor. I'm pretty good at discernment. I'm not very good at galvanization or enablement or tenacity. Uh, I run hot. I go in there. I evangelize. I, I think of ideas. I get the people excited. 
but don't ask me to, you know, execute a complicated campaign, man. I'm going to fail you. <laughs> I just, <laughs> and that's probably what got me fired at Bank of America. It's like, he's all hat and no, no horse or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, those things and our culture score in our company is pretty much off the charts. Uh, we really strive on trust and, and candid conflict, and conflict in not a negative sense, but conflict where everyone is expected to have a voice. Everyone can speak. Uh, everyone you know, is expected to contribute. And, and at some point, there needs to be a direction given, and everyone needs to you know, release their points of view and get behind it in a unified manner. And, and we've really, I don't say perfected, but nearly perfected that where people say like, yeah, I trust everyone. They, the company, everyone has a number, everyone comes with ideas, everyone speaks, um, everyone gets behind the singular direction and everyone goes uh, quickly. And we can do that very quickly as a company. We measure that every single quarter. Uh, and yeah, there's just, uh, you know, we don't get together that often. Uh, we do like once a year, I'll make trips and we'll bring people in and, and out and stuff like that. But honestly, it's, um, people really like the account, it all gets down to accountability and feeling like your teammates are active participants in the business. Um, so yeah. And people get to travel around the world, which is another great benefit of working with us. You know, they get to go on these vetting, uh, trips on partners and stuff. So that's, uh, that's what keeps us together. That's the glue. Yeah. That's really good. Andy. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Hey, no problem here. Well, Andy, I appreciate you coming on. We got to different topics and completely missed topics that I wanted to ask you about. So we'll, we'll have to have you on for a part two, but this has been fantastic. So we're going to send all the listeners to, to check out Accelerance, to try and connect with you or, or follow you on, on LinkedIn. We'll put a link to, uh, to your book as well. Um, anything else, any final thoughts or anything else you want to, uh, to leave with the listeners? You know, I, I uh, I listen to your podcast and I really appreciate what you do. Uh, and every person has their own stories and a different path and different journey. So, you know, uh, it's, it's great to get out of your own shoes and your own head and just to live in someone else's journey, right. uh, and do that as many times as possible, because it's just, uh, you know, we, we live in a bubble. We live in our own bubble and in, in so many bubbles, big bubbles and small bubbles. And, and you, you give us a nice, easy departure even at 1.5 speed, you can live someone else's journey. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I walk every morning and, and I take in about an hour of podcasts. Uh, and this is, this is one where I just, I get to be in another person's shoes. That's good, man. Well said. Well, well thanks, Andy. Thank you for letting us walk in your shoes a little bit today, uh, Andy. I still learn stuff and I've known you for a long time. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Gary, for being a great friend. Ben, it was great to meet you. Yeah, you too.